Welcome to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. I'm Scott, and I thank you for joining us. In this episode, we'll meet composer K. Edward Smith and hear about an exciting creative project he's undertaken to revitalize an obscure classic film with a fresh new score. The film is called Dementia, and it dates back to 1953. It's a noir horror film by director John Parker. It's notable for a few reasons. One of them is that the movie was barred from theaters. We'll get into all that. Smith, who I know as Kyle, is based in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the American heartland. He grew up in a small farming community and chose an atypical career path. He became a heavy metal drummer. Later, he added singer-songwriter to his resume, and now he's a film composer as well. If Kyle sounds unconventional, he is. His original music defies categories, which reflects his underlying mindset. Kyle composed an alternative score for Dementia. His minimalist avant-garde soundtrack honors the original film and transforms an already unique movie in the process. You can think of this project as a collaboration with Parker, who passed away in the 1980s, across a span of 70 years. The new version of the film, released last Halloween, is available on the web. The soundtrack album is available on Right Brain Records. Let's hear from Kyle and listen to his music. I had this long path to becoming a musician as a career. Started out as uh, most of my childhood spending time in school bands and things like that. It was a very small farming community. It was Amish land, like Weird Al's Amish paradise. That was like where I was at. <laughs> it, it's this wide spot in the road between a couple of smaller industrial towns in Indiana where the main uh, industry was RV manufacturing. 
and so there wasn't a lot of things going on other than school school sports and church my dad was a pastor so we were surrounded by a lot of farm country and a lot of farmers and things like that music was a place where i felt like my voice was heard and that i felt like i could express myself through my instrument i felt like i was a part of this community going to that that first underground show this kid from this small religious farm community going and seeing his first underground diy punk show it's like holy shit, there's something else going on here what i really saw in kind of the underground diy scene was you know these were local guys uh it's this idea of you too can do this there was an inkling of a path which was enough to hook me I wound up in education for a while and I still teach lessons and things like that. And I love that. And education's a big part of my life, a big part of my life and my wife. My wife's a, a public school teacher. I know I wouldn't be doing that, be a musician now, if I didn't have a good music program at the school I was going to. We did have some cool opportunities with, with the jazz band um, to play some things that are a little bit more out. It's still pretty square, but the coolest thing was the percussion ensembles. And you know, this is where you're getting into weird instruments doing like your twirling PVC pipe over your head to get like the bull roar sound, you're hitting boxes and stuff. And if you listen to the soundtrack, I clearly love weird instrumentation and like things used in ways they're not supposed to be used. And that started early. You know, and so I got a little bit of that punk rock spirit of the, hey, you can turn things that are not supposed to be instruments into instruments. I was shown that in the public school program. I wanted to play punk rock. <laughs> I wanted to play metal. I had the huge drum set with the two kick drums and the, you know, I was listening to classic thrash bands and stuff like that. You know, you're a high school kid, you're listening to Metallica and you, maybe caught wind of the Sex Pistols and snuck that in or something like that. It's pretty life-changing stuff if you're in a small farming community.
do I think of my own space in the music sphere? That's a good question. Especially in relation to being a drummer and a singer. It, it took me a long time to be comfortable seeing myself as a singer and a songwriter. And that, that definitely came later. There's something that a lot of artists, myself included, and every, maybe not every, but 99% of artists go through some sort of experience with what a lot of people call imposter syndrome. That, that sort of thing where it's like, you feel like you don't belong here. You feel like you're not, um, your voice doesn't matter, that it, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing or something like that. And especially around singing and guitar, that took me a long time to get comfortable seeing myself in a different role. Because it, you know, as drummers, we have kind of this mythology of, you're the guy in the back, you're Ringo. He only wrote like one good song about an octopus or something like that, you know? That's pretty present. And nobody talks about these great drummers who, are also songwriters or talk about um, the fact that as a drummer in, in kind of a pop band setting, even a rock band setting, you're doing a lot of um, leading from behind the band. Um, you, a, Any producer will tell you that the drums and the vocals are what make the sound of a track. Um, and if you see it live, a great drummer, live or recorded, a great drummer can transform the mood of a song from something that's just kind of subpar to something elevated. Flip-flop of that, you know, a bad drummer can also take a great song and just make it really mediocre. So you do a lot of that leading from behind. And um, I love that. I loved being the guy kind of behind the scene. I transitioned into songwriting mostly because I started to fall in love with the process of writing. So there's a little bit of a defiance um, in me taking on the frontman role. There's a little bit of that that punk rock energy. Um, seeing, you know, some of the these great bands think like the Raincoats, where you kind of hear them learn their instruments as the recordings go on, and it's like this still matters. This is still beautiful. And a lot of like the post-punk bands are that way too, where they pick up instruments that they didn't necessarily know, and they're like, well we're gonna make this a record. And there's something beautiful about that. And as you kind of got on with that, it's, um, I, I love that energy and that vibe. And I'm like, I need to practice what I preach. It's more common than you'd think, but it's not the narrative that's told out there. I know it's late. You probably had a long day I've got the butterflies I'm not sure what to say If I could hold your hand I think that go singer-songwriter actually started out as kind of a challenge to myself 
to challenge that conception in in my own brain of can can I do this? Uh, so what I did to just you know kind of rip the bandaid off was I challenged myself to write, record, release a new song every three weeks for a year from scratch with knowing only enough to be dangerous, both on instruments and recording and all of that, keeping with the DIY vibe. After the end of the year, the comparison from the first song to the, the last song, of course it's significantly better. To me, that's a really cool story. When you don't know where to go But you've already been there Don't know how it ends From here When the road's all washed away And the fog starts rolling in Don't know where to go from here When there's nothing left to say And you've turned that final page You came to me with an idea out of the blue. That's the first time anyone ever emailed me to say, I have a movie soundtrack and I think you might be interested. And I was. Can you briefly summarize the movie Dementia? Sure. It's it's a strange film. Uh, that's probably, I know that word gets used a lot in the reviews and anytime you talk about it. And you, you can't quite 
talk about it without using the word strange. It was released in the early 50s, recorded as a, a film without any sort of dialogue. It was a bunch of disturbing images put together that loosely follows the story of this young girl who finds a knife in her drawer and goes out and interacts with some violent abuse in different ways and ends up killing a guy in the, the middle point of the film. It's a guy that she is getting pimped out to. And she kills him in a very violent way of stabbing him. And he falls off of the, the tower into the pile of money as it floats down in like the doves in a John Woo film around them. And then she's on the run from the law. And she ends up at this jazz club where the pimp finds her again. And eventually she finds some sort of solace. She's dancing in the club. She's resting. She's like, okay, I'm free. This is good. The guy that she killed, she had cut off the guy's hand to retrieve a medallion that he had pulled off of her as he fell. And this was something of value to her. And she had taken the hand with the medallion clutched in it with her. And so this dude is armless and dead in the street. And she's running, she gets to the jazz club, she's dancing, she's relaxing. And all of a sudden, a policeman walks in, a policeman that's been chasing her. And she looks up and she sees the guy she killed alive, but handless, laughing at her in the window. And then at the end, she wakes up and thinks it's a dream. She finds herself back in bed. But all of a sudden, she sees the medallions in the same drawer where she found the knife earlier. And so she goes and she pulls out, and the hand's there, and it's still alive and grabbing. And that's the end of the film. So it's like this weird, surrealist film that has kind of noir feeling to it and how it's shot. It has some, like, B-horror movie feel to it because it was a very low-budget film. But it doesn't feel like, you know, Attack of the Giant Leeches or something like that, other than like the set dressing. It feels more like some of the early surrealist films. And the original score, so it was silent except for the original score, uh, which was done by George Antheil, I think is how you pronounce his last name. And he was an early 20th century avant-garde composer. His best known work is Ballet Mechanique, which is this really cool percussion piece, percussion and piano, um, that was early attached to film. And his score kind of had this high warbling voice that went with it, it was, and it just kind of added to the disturbing nature of the film. So it's this weird surrealist thing that really unsettled people when it first came out. It was originally banned in New York and after like one showing, and they wanted to make significant cuts around the film. I'm still a little unsure why. I don't know if it was because it was a female protagonist, you know, committing these very violent acts. I don't know if it's the overt sexual nature, if there wasn't dialogue, um, but the uh, John J. Parker, the director, got really frustrated with it, ended up selling it off. They did a re-release of it with some narration from Ed McMahon and to kind of play up oh, this girl is crazy, and made some significant cuts to the film. It's a very odd film from that time, and it kind of became a cult classic.
what gave you the idea to write an alternative score? I came across the film, I'd been wanting to do a film score for some time. Uh, the Cinema Center here in Fort Wayne actually had a live um, film score show from a band out of Nashville that right after my wife and I moved here, we're like, oh, this is great. This is awesome going and seeing this. And it was like an old German uh, sci-fi film from the 20s. So the source material was great. The performance was awful. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, man, this is such a great idea. The execution just left so much wanting. Um, and so that had kind of been in the back of my mind of wanting to do something like that. I brought a couple of times the idea up to some of the bands I'd been in and things like that. Um, and I'd been want, so I like the idea of doing a film square had been on my mind. Um, much in the same way of doing songwriting was like, yeah, this is interesting. Let's go for it. <laughs> you know? Um, so finally I, so I'd been kind of keeping an eye out on public domain films that might be a good fit or might lend themselves to something cool. And when I came across dementia in one of those searches, I'm like, this is great. There's no dialogue. So I don't have to like worry about cutting in and out of the, of the dialogue and ruining it or trying to like hire voice actors and overdub it to take away from the playing of the film. You know, I wanted it to still be a thing that stood in conjunction with the film. And that was one of the things that that performance had left wanting that it didn't really feel like it was part of the film and like a score should add to the experience instead of just be there. I knew nothing of this whole backstory about it getting banned or the controversy around it or anything. I just thought, this is this is a weird movie. This is a fucked up film and I wanna do something with it. And there's no dialogue, so it's perfect. I really like George Ann Thiel's original score and I like him as a composer. So it wasn't like a, hey, I need to update this or something like that. I just wanted to do something in the spirit of keeping going, of pushing the, the musical avant-garde and just thought this would be a good vehicle for it. One thing that struck me was the contrast between your score and the original. The original is typical of its time in the sense that it was very big. It was very dense with sound, used in orchestra, and uh, very cinematic. Yours is very minimalist, at least in the sense of how much sound is there. And to me, that accentuated the imagery. In approaching the actual like choices of instrumentation and choices of the type of textures and things like that, I wanted to create something that was very visceral and like bodily, you feel the violence of the film. I think with the original score um, and kind of the trappings of that era, 
it's really easy to lump that film in with the, with kind of B-horror movies and not see it through this like surrealist, like, whoa, what is this going on? It gets lost in the camp somewhat. Uh, and so I wasn't necessarily wanting to do an update, but I didn't want to try and recreate that same campiness. I wanted something that felt like kind of viscerally violent sound-wise. Um, and being a percussionist, that's, you know, in a, especially in a metal band, like that's kind of where you want to go <laughs> with a lot of sounds. Um, you want to create something that will move you um, and create a type of mood and a type of emotion that helps you inhabitate this really messed up space. So it was a lot of experimentation with what I had at hand. So you can kind of see behind me and there's a lot of random instruments. There's some homemade instruments on the soundtrack. There's like a cigar box guitar. There's a lot of bowed instruments that I felt there's like a low drone that kind of goes throughout. That's a bowed acoustic guitar tuned way down low. And it's just, there's, there's something off about the sounds I was able to get. And that's kind of what I searched for was how can I make this sound like it's something's kind of out of place.
I didn't have access to a full orchestra and I didn't really want to do just a synth thing for this. I wanted something that was acoustic to give some of that like visceral immediacy. And so I kind of limited myself to that palette and that helped build up uh, a language of timbres that I started to use throughout the film. What resonated with me with that film as I was working with it was there felt like this, the director's clearly an outsider. He's making it in the medium that he has access to, but he doesn't quite fit what's going on around him. And people aren't getting what he's going for. Like obviously by the critical reception, by it being banned. But there is this undercurrent of, there's this resonance that he's touching on something very human. I don't know if I can put it in words, but like with a lot of surrealist art, that's kind of the whole point. It's not putting it in words, but it evokes something very human within you. I went for just leaning into those very personal, these are me, these are what I have at hand, human acoustic things, and just really leaned into it and did damage to some instruments, you know, um, as in improvisation with watching the film. So there is kind of this feedback of me watching the film and performing something like a hard screech on a cymbal or something like that when she's sticking in the knife or it's just like, so there's this like real time back and forth. There's a motif that goes through that's the glockenspiel that kind of represents the girl. I had some specific types of sounds and instruments that I was using, but it was largely improvised watching the film. And it, that was some experimentation in improvising where you're like, oh, this works here. I'm going to do this. And then you get a full take of that. Uh, there is some editing in post to line things up. You know, I'm doing the recording myself. I'm playing all of the instruments and I wanted it to really line up with the film. But largely it's full takes of improvising while watching the screen multi-tracked and layered over each other. I've watched that movie several times and the more I watch it, the more attentive I am. How's the music syncing with the film and how's that essential to the experience? It struck me as you've in a way released a different movie using the same video. That's cool that that's the experience you had with it. In some ways, I guess that that was my goal was continuing it. It's a dialogue with an artist through the years. You're communicating with this other piece of art and feeling that resonance, but we're going to take it and transform it into a new piece. Currently, at the time of recording this, we are in rehearsals for performing the score live with the, with the film behind it. I was really intrigued by the idea of doing it live with an ensemble of musicians. The difficult part for me in 
the process was transcribing the the score after doing improvisation with all of these extended techniques and non-traditional western instruments that are outside of western notation non-traditional ways of playing things so i had to do a lot of kind of inventing notation so that i could communicate with these uh, musicians how we want to you know portray this on screen uh, so we're working on rehearsing that uh, the performance date we're partnering with a local art gallery called bread and circus so that's going to be in february in march we're hitting the road again with a simulator so i'm back to the heavy metal we're going to vegas and uh, texas we got a festival in vegas and we're doing a run around that and then there's uh the k edward smith album that's going to be coming out uh in may june late spring this album is a concept album based on a ray bradbury book um, so the book is a graveyard for lunatics um, i love ray bradbury he just has such a weird surrealist style like apparently that's i know i've used that terminology a lot but you read it and you kind of get swept into a, a new world it's a very specific style and it's like a murder mystery on a old 50s hollywood lot I wanted to create an album that captured the sense of place, like it's little vignettes on characters. I'm excited for that, that'll be fun.
should be walking on my name downtown. down in this hole. We've been listening to the voice and music of K. Edward Smith. To watch Dementia with Smith's new score, link to his original music, and see today's playlist, visit rightbrainrecords.com slash blog and find the entry for this episode. I like those shoes, I can tell you where you got them. Different street, but they're all the same. Let's find a bottle that we can go cozy up with. Maybe a nice porch where we can wait out the rain. You've been listening to the Right Brain Music Podcast, presented by Right Brain Records. You can visit us at rightbrainrecords.com. Farewell for now. Join us next time. Thank <laughs> you.